0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we're at a which-side-are-you-on moment. That's what Randy Weingarten says. She's head of the Teachers' Union, and wildcat strikes by teachers in some unlikely states have been some of the most remarkable events of the past few months. Also later in this hour, your Minnesota moment. Keith Ellison, congressman from Minneapolis, the first Muslim elected to the House and head of the Progressive Caucus, has quit the House to run for state attorney general in Minnesota. What is he thinking David Dayan will explain? First up, how are things going for the Democrats? Trump Watch starts right now. For today's political update, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, like every other news show today, we've got to open with Hurricane Florence. Uh, There's political news about Hurricane Florence. Uh, In the last few hours, Florida governor... Uh, Republican Rick Scott, who is trying to take the seat of Democratic incumbent Senator Bill Nelson, broke with President Trump this morning, saying he sees no reason to doubt the fact that nearly 3,000 people died following hurricanes in Puerto Rico last year. Uh, President Trump this morning, in a Twitter uh, rant, accused Democrats of lying about how many people died in Puerto Rico after hurricanes Maria and Irma. Uh, he said the Democrats were just trying to look, make him look bad. Uh, Rick Scott said, "Quote: I disagree with POTUS. An independent study said thousands were lost." The loss of any life is tragic. The extent of lives lost as a result of Hurricane Maria is heart-wrenching. I'll continue to help Puerto Rico, close quote. Uh, Republican Senate candidate Rick Scott in Florida, what does this mean?
1: Well, one of the things it means is that there uh, has long been a large uh, Puerto Rican uh, population in Florida, centered around Orlando. Uh, and it's gotten a lot larger uh, as a result of the above mentioned uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, that uh, at least uh, certainly more than 50,000 uh, Puerto Ricans have uh, moved, uh, I, I, as I understand it, to the, basically around the Orlando area, uh, a place where I have actually, in, in past elections, covered precinct walks in largely uh, Puerto Rican and New Rican uh, com- communities ah. there. Uh, and uh, the polling in the Senate race that you referred to, in which Republican Governor Rick Scott is uh, about even with uh, Democratic incumbent Senator Bill Nelson, the polling is, is, is very close. And uh, I'm sure it didn't require a high-salary <laughs> political aid to tell Rick Scott you better uh disassociate yourself from this trump tw- tweet like in a nanosecond because uh this is gotten to hurt you <clears throat> come election day
0: uh all right that 's our hurricane political news for uh, for this uh hour uh, i The other thing that 's happening in Washington today is the Kavanaugh. Uh, 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 nomination is the subject of the Senate Judiciary Committee's deliberations. I guess we really have to talk about Kavanaugh politics, which are not very promising. Uh, how is Susan Collins doing at this hour?
1: Well, uh, Susan Collins has complained that there is, uh, uh, an attempt as it were to bribe her, uh, Uh, by which he is referring to the fact that uh, many, many people in Maine and elsewhere have said they would uh, contribute uh, to uh, uh, her opponent in her, uh, should she run for re-election two years hence, if she votes for uh, uh, for Kavanaugh. Uh, Some people, I think, reasonably concluded that, no, that's not really bribery. That's a form (laughs) of... uh, popular pressure uh, to keep her from confirming someone who might repeal Roe v. Wade and uh, the New Deal uh, while he's at it. But there's there's a a new wrinkle uh, in this whole discussion, which is that uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein is in possession of a letter uh, from someone alleging that when he was in high school, uh Kavanaugh was involved in some episode of sexual misconduct, uh uh and that uh the uh the woman who wrote this letter, uh apparently sort of uh B two allegation, uh requests anonymity and that Senator Feinstein, uh having had this letter for several days and not shared it with her Democratic colleagues, has now given it to the FBI. Huh. Uh which is likely means that the vote uh that was scheduled in the uh committee. Uh, Judiciary committee might be put off for a little bit. We shall see what this means.
0: High school. How bad is it to be accused anonymously of committing sexual offenses in high school? I do not know.
1: Uh, <laughs> we do not know.
0: Depends uh, what they are. I Partly it depends what the accusations are.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, You know, uh, all I can say is, to the best of our knowledge, no one made that accusation against Merrick Garland, (laughs) who was uh, uh, President Obama's nominee, who never got a hearing uh, for the seat that uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is now up for.
0: So if you are counting heads right now on the Kavanaugh nomination, how does it look?
1: Well, right now, uh, the main thing is that uh, neither of the two presumably swing Republicans, uh, Senator Collins of Maine or uh, Senator Mikowski of Alaska, has indicated they uh, would vote no. Uh, that in and of itself would uh, confirm uh, Judge Kavanaugh by a 51 to 49 vote if all the Democrats fell together. My, my sense is that if the two Republicans... Uh, essentially uh, are voting to confirm that might make some Democrats up for re-election in uh, pro-Trump states uh, also vote for confirmation, uh, possibly Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp in, uh, uh, in North Dakota, uh, and maybe Joe Donnelly in uh, Indiana. So uh, we don't know. But it basically... You know, there's a reason why Susan Collins in particular is in the crosshairs on this. Uh, if any Republican is going to break, uh, she would be the one. And so we will have to wait and see uh, what happens there.
0: Well, to cheer us up at this point, I'd like to take a look at the new polls about the House campaigns with you. Uh, what uh, what have we learned in the last few days from Quinnipiac and CNN and these other polls?
1: Well, some of these polls give Democrats now a national advantage of more or less 10 points, uh, which would certainly mean there's a blue wave out there. And in addition to that, um, I was speaking yesterday uh, on the phone to a venerable Democratic pollster, Stan Greenberg. Yeah. Uh, with Bill Clinton's chief pollster and Nelson Mandela's chief pollster. Stan has been around. Stan's own polling also confirms about a 10% uh, advantage for Democrats, uh, including in swing districts. Uh, So there there are other polls that that show the Democrats ahead, but not by uh, so much. But uh, I think there's a growing conviction that there there really is uh, a Democratic wave. Uh, the, the, The corollary to this is that President Trump's own poll approval ratings have been sinking again, down and to near the 40% level as opposed to the 45% level. Uh, and all of this augurs well for the Democrats, uh, and it's hard to see what exactly might turn this around between now and November, but it's uh, still too early to uh, uh, you know be certain of anything.
0: Yeah, no, the polls tell us what things look like today, and no responsible pollster would say this is a prediction. This is uh, the famous snapshot just to remind our listeners the democrats need 23 seats i see that nate silver at 538.com right now and his snapshot is predicting the de- democrats will gain 39 seats that's uh i guess we could call that a blue wave mm-hmm.
1: well i mean anything that transfers control of the house to the democrats is is huge uh And, you know, there's a number of other, uh, you know, hugely important seats. I mean, the Senate is certainly in play. uh, And there are states uh, that will be redistricting after the 2020 election, where the election of the governor, therefore, is very important uh, in terms of the composition of Congress for the next decade. Uh, So there's a lot at play, but uh, uh, certainly a 39-seat gain that that, uh, Nate Silver is currently Predicting if the election were held today uh, would, be, uh, would be really huge.
0: And uh, what these polls Quinnipiac and uh, CNN find uh, is that in the generic ballot matchup, uh, Democrats are way ahead among women, 20 points uh, ahead among women, according to Quinnipiac, 15 points among independents, 9 points among college-educated whites, which some people consider to be a Republican group. And uh, among young people and uh, African-Americans and uh, Latinos, just huge margins, of course. So the um, this is what we call the Obama coalition seems to be uh, reforming women, independents, young people, uh, people of color.
1: Well, and this is what uh, has been called since John Judas and Rudy Toshero wrote a book about this many uh, years ago, The Rising American Electorate.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and it's still there, and uh, there's some new uh, numbers out about the demographic transformation of the country from yes. the Brookings Institution in the last, uh, uh, the last day, William Friday, the great demographer at Brookings, noting, among other things, that since the 2010 census, there have actually been uh, more immigrants from uh, Asia, chiefly uh, China and India, than there have been from Latin America, contrary to, I think, everyone's sort of perception of uh, who, is, who is coming into the country, at least not quite in those ratios. And what's also interesting, partly because of the Asian influx, is that I, I, I think this is the highest percentage of college-educated immigrants the United States has ever received, something like 45% since 2010. Now, given what you were just talking about, uh, you know, Trump not faring well uh, among either uh, uh, minority voters or college-educated voters, the growth of
0: college-educated immigrants, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I think
1: is, is yet another long-term political nightmare for the uh, for the Republican Party.
0: I I I see your logic here; it's very convincing. I want to just uh, dwell for a minute on one subset of the House electorate, uh, and that is the what's called the Obama to Trump districts. These are districts that voted for Obama. Uh, And then switched to Trump, didn't vote for Hillary. So these are not uh, racist districts. These are districts where uh, Obama won, often twice, but they wouldn't vote for Hillary. Uh, Turns out, I just learned this today, there are 21 congressional districts that voted for Obama and then switched to Trump. Uh, And of course, we it's crucially important to us to win these back. These people shouldn't be Trump voters. Um, do you know anything more about the Obama to Trump districts and what's happening with them in this cycle?
1: I do believe that those are some of the districts that Nate Silver looked at, and I don't remember his numbers, but it sounded promising that there were more of them tilted to, at the moment uh, uh, towards voting Democratic in November than. Uh, Uh, tilted towards voting Republican, is what I think.
0: Yeah. uh, All right. Yes. Uh, Nine of the 21 here, I found the statistics, nine of the 21 are currently held by Democrats, and those people are all expected to be reelected. The other 12, the Democrats would like to flip. Nate Silver rates three of them likely Democratic, one lean Democratic, and five... Toss up. Only three of those are rated likely Republicans. So you are right. Uh, these look promising for Democratic uh, pickups, or let's say restoring, restoring these to the Democratic column. Right, the-
1: and and remember, these are the, This is only one subset of swing districts, of yes. which there are probably about seventy at the moment. Uh, and when we think about all the seven districts in California yes. uh, that have Republican uh, members of Congress right now, but that Hillary carried, uh, none of those districts are included in in that particular uh, uh, you know uh, subset that you were just talking about. So there's there, there's a lot of ways that Democrats can uh, uh, you know get to uh, a majority in the House in, in a range of districts for their own reasons uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats can pick up seats. in.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up those California districts because Obama came to Anaheim on Saturday to campaign for the seven Democrats in flippable house districts. We've talked about these districts quite a bit here. Um, what's the significance of Obama joining the campaign?
1: Well, uh, you know, some Republicans have noted, gee, uh, you know, past presidents usually don't do this. Uh, George W. Bush didn't say word one uh, uh, about Obama's presidency and so on. Uh, But I I think, uh, you know, Obama is merely responding, as most uh, sentient Americans are, (laughs) to the fact that we are not uh, in a normal political time. And that the administration uh, of Donald Trump uh, has authoritarian aspects, which are genuinely frightening. And uh, as uh, a significant public figure, he felt obliged to uh, to intervene. And I I, I think uh, it will have a, a positive effect in a number of uh, in a number of swing districts. Uh, I mean, you know, clearly he. Uh, is is anathema to the hardcore republican base but the hardcore republican base was going to vote anyway yeah so yeah. i i don't I, I really don't see any any political uh, any political harm coming from this and i see some real political good coming from this in some swing districts uh, where uh, a reminder that america has not always been as crazy as it's been since Donald trump became president is uh, is helpful
0: and let's remember that obama is by far the most successful democratic political leader of our lifetime I mean he's the only one who's gotten more who's gotten a majority of the presidential vote twice uh, uh, more and no Republican has gotten the the majority of the presidential vote twice since Ronald Reagan, um, I believe, actually, George Bush did not get a majority of the votes the first time he ran. Uh, Certainly Donald Trump didn't get a majority of the votes. And, of course, Bill Clinton never got uh, more than 50 percent of the vote because uh, a third-party candidate, Ross Perot, took uh, a substantial uh, uh, proportion. So uh, Obama is a unique political figure in our time. And uh, to have him on the campaign trail again seems to me to be, I agree with you, a very good thing for the Democrats.
1: Yeah, it is, uh, and uh, I, I think uh, you will see. Uh, you're you're already seeing Democrats uh, who are fairly popular uh, and and are running in 2020 for president, or uh, in, in, in the case of Gavin Newsom, the Democratic nominee for governor in California, who uh, doesn't really have a serious opponent, uh, doing what they can to help other Democrats. That's that's standard, but I think we're going to see. A whole lot of that, and there's such a large crew of Democrats who are looking at running for president in uh, in 2020 uh, that I expect we'll see. You know, a, a, you can set a count on one or another popping up in any given district uh, between now and election day. So there's going to be a lot of uh, a, a lot of such campaigning.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. We're looking at the uh, future of American politics here over the next couple of months. I guess we should also talk about the. Senate, uh, Democrats need to gain only a net of two seats to take control of the Senate, and things are looking pretty good in Arizona and Nevada, and probably Tennessee. Uh, that's three. Uh, what What else uh, What else do we need to know about the Senate? Well,
1: I think, you know, the biggest upset that would be out there uh, would be if Democrat Beto O'Rourke could uh, un- unseat uh, Senator Cruz in... Uh, uh, in Texas, since Texas is really the anchor of the modern Republican coalition yes. and home to a, uh, a, a state that every time you think it's gone as far right as it's humanly possible, it goes five degrees more <laughs> to the right. Uh, but Texas, like California, is uh, going through a remarkable demographic transition. Uh, its its numbers uh, in terms of percentage of Latinos and the percentage of whites are not that different from uh, from California. Uh, and it's been you know a sort of conventional wisdom for some time that Texas would eventually flip. Uh, what we're seeing this year uh, with the Aurora campaign and uh, the, the the travails of, of Seneca Cruz is that uh, it, it, it just it's just a chance it might flip, uh, you know even before anyone uh, anyone really anticipated we'll, we'll see.
0: That would be that would be a dream. It would be a political earthquake if, if Beto beat uh, Ted Cruz uh, in, in Texas. It would.
1: Well you know look the two uh, the two the two major states. Uh, uh that provide the most electoral votes to Republicans. Uh Texas certainly and Florida sometimes. Yeah. And both of these states uh are are uh you know have complex demographies and uh uh I I think in the long run both are gonna be trending democratic uh and we will uh we'll just have to see you know now the can Republicans therefore compensate for that by picking up some of the former Uh, democratic states of the industrial once industrial Midwest that that's kind of the the flip here but it you know it's not at all clear I mean Democrats I think well positioned to pick up some governor seats in the industrial Midwest come November as well so we shall see
0: and what is the Republican strategy for this November Rick Scott today came out against Trump on Puerto Rican uh, hurricane casualties is anybody else doing anything like that
1: Well, uh, the Republican, the Republican strategy is uh, to save yourself and do whatever you can to win. Uh, uh, If, if uh, sticking with Trump generally, uh, uh, you know, will turn out more of the Republican base, and that's what you need to win, you're going to do that. And if you're Rick Scott in a demographically shifting state with a large Puerto Rican uh, population, and Trump says, nah, you know, people weren't really killed in uh, uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, you, uh, Uh, You spring to, uh, uh, you know, object uh, as soon as you can. I mean, look, there's there's the usual demonization of Democrats for having, uh, uh, you know, said something left in their youth or uh, (laughs) having been, you know, I mean, actually, Cruz went after O'Rourke for his, uh, uh, when he was a teenager,
2: being in a punk rock band. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) really... I I
1: I don't think you know I mean of, of, of the various attacks you can make I don't think that one resonated all that much and I think there are a lot of a lot of people whose kids did that and they you know they understand it's it's phase that either their kids or that they themselves passed through you know with, uh, with no great harm to the republic
0: uh so let's see the the um the current scenarios are almost that very strong chance of democratic control of the house Mild chance that Republicans keep the Senate, so that would be our worst-case scenario. What could the Democrats do if that happened, and what couldn't they do? Obviously, they could not bl- block future Supreme Court nominations of Donald Trump. What, what else would happen uh, next January?
1: Well, if if the Democrats take the House but do not take the Senate, uh, they can certainly and will certainly start a whole. In lieu of investigations uh in the house so, uh, no one's going to rush to in, in, you know do, do impeachment on on day one, but you know there there are all kinds of things that can be subpoenaed there's donald Trump's legendary tax returns there's uh, uh you know any number of things that uh, con republican Congress has very conscientiously failed to uh, uh, follow up or investigate or challenge with uh, with trump that the, that the Democrats can do they can also introduce. Some exemplary legislation that Republicans don't want to uh, be made to vote on, like raising the minimum wage, like uh, ensuring again the protection of pre-existing conditions under Obamacare, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, controls on drug prices. And then you know it'll it'll pass the House. It won't pass the Senate if the Republicans control the Senate. Even if it passed the Senate, if the Democrats were to control the Senate, Trump would veto it. But you know you can, you can. Uh, make him veto, or make the Republicans vote against some very popular, sensible proposals. So uh, you know, I, I, you, you would see some version of that, and you'd see uh, investigations with subpoena power. Uh, uh, neither one of which uh, is, is anything that the Republicans will welcome.
0: And uh, this would the, these subpoenas would undoubtedly be appealed to the Supreme Court, which takes us back to the Senate confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh. The count right now is in his favor, but it's not, it's not over till it's over, is what I've heard about that. Uh, so, worst case scenario, the Democrats will control the House for the next two years and the Republicans will control the Supreme Court for the next 20. Uh, not the happiest of solutions. Harold, do you have any closing thoughts at this point? Well, look,
1: you know, the Constitution doesn't stipulate that there have to be nine members of the Supreme Court. Uh, the court has grown before. It could grow again, just uh, in case uh, the five justices, uh, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, uh, run, run as amok, as we think they may. Uh, so there's, there's always that possibility as well if the Democrats control both houses and the White House uh, after the 2020 election.
0: Harold Meyerson reminding us that Beto O'Rourke was in a punk rock band. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks very much. Always great to have you on the show.
1: Always great to be here, John.
0: I'm John Weiner, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, what is Keith Ellison thinking? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, hour, the wonderful Randy Weingarten, head of the Teachers Union, says, we're at a which side are you on moment. But first, it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today, what is Keith Ellison thinking? He was elected to represent Minneapolis in the House in 2006. He's African-American. He became the first Muslim representative in Congress in American history. Then he became head of the Progressive Caucus. But a few months ago, he resigned and announced he was running instead for state attorney general. What was he thinking? For comment, we turn to David Dayan. He writes for The Intercept, The Nation, and The New Republic, where he's a weekly columnist. And he's the author of the book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Greatest Foreclosure Fraud. David Dayan, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me on, John.
0: Well, Keith Ellison quit the House after serving for 12 years. He quit at the point when it looks like Democrats will retake control of the House and probably begin impeachment proceedings against Trump. Why wouldn't he want to be part of that?
2: Right. And and you're correct to, to point that out. It's, it's pretty unusual for someone with seniority to leave the House of Representatives right when his party is poised to take over a majority. But in talking to uh, Congressman Ellison, he truly believes that the position of state attorney general is really the front lines of resistance to the Trump agenda. And uh, he makes a compelling case that virtually all the the real success at at stopping uh, much of, of what Trump is attempting to do has come from... Lawsuits uh, pursued by state attorneys general, and in addition, uh, you know the the ability for state attorneys general to stand in and essentially substitute for a federal regulatory apparatus who is, has simply walked off the field uh, is 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 a very potent uh, uh, arrow in the quiver uh, for someone like Ellison who who really wants to be an activist. Attorney General. So that's that's really the idea.
0: And uh, it isn't just the Minnesota Attorney General's office that has uh, pursued uh, this this line. There's California, and I believe some other states have aggressive Attorney Generals uh, as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are 22 uh, Democratic State Attorneys General right now, and and they have repeatedly sued the Trump administration over everything from. Uh, the Muslim travel ban, to uh, auto fuel standards, the the border wall, uh, the the proposed end of net neutrality, and there have actually been some wins there. Uh, not on everything, but uh, the 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 plan to end the DACA program for ch- immigrant children who are immigrants who came here as children, uh, that's been frozen. Uh, there, there's, uh, the attempt to deny women free birth control under the affordable care act that's been stopped, uh, certain, uh, pollution, uh, measures, anti-pollution measures have been, uh, that, that the Trump administration attempted to get away with or, or do away with have been stopped by uh, state attorneys general. So it's, it's really been pretty sweeping that, that this, this attempt to use the law because, the Trump administration was undertaking these things either in violation of the Constitution or in violation of legislative statute, uh, and 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 it's really up to state attorneys general to to really be the first and last line of defense there.
0: Uh, one of my favorite cases, the news just came out a few hours ago. A federal judge ruled that Betsy DeVos has improperly delayed implementing a rule to give student loan borrowers relief. This was a U.S. District Court judge uh, uh, ruling on a lawsuit brought by attorney generals from 18 states who sued Betsy DeVos for freezing the, an Obamacare rule intended to help students receive debt forgiveness if they were cheated by their college, especially Corinthian College, the for-profit school that was the worst of the worst. I think you probably know all about this case.
2: Absolutely. And they, that was, you know, uh, a lot of those outlets were right here in Southern California. Yeah. Um, the Massachusetts Attorney General, Mara Healy, really championed this lawsuit, and she's been uh, a great force. Uh, the way in which Betsy DeVos uh, tried to stop uh, students who were defrauded by for-profit colleges uh, from, from actually being able to cancel their loans was done improperly, uh, according to the, the, the three-judge panel. And, uh, you know, that, that's just, that just adds to the list of, of what state attorneys general have been doing. And Ellison wants to be a part of that. And, and there are other progressives who, who want to be a part of that, including uh, the race happening today in, in New York State with uh, Zephyr Teachout, who is attempting to become uh, attorney general of New York and is running very strongly on a platform of being a check on uh, on the, the worst impulses of, of the Trump administration.
0: And since we believe many of the Trump crimes were committed in the jurisdiction of the Attorney General of New York, she has many more opportunities to pursue a Trump on criminal charges than uh, Keith Ellison would in Minnesota.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And uh, New York, just by its proximity, being in the financial center of the United States, Uh, That position is is extremely important, especially when you have the bank regulators really uh, 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 shirking their responsibilities under the Trump administration. Having a strong attorney general in New York is absolutely critical. In fact, you know, attorneys general, if you look throughout history, uh, was really Bob Abrams, who was the attorney general of New York back in the 1980s when the Reagan administration pursued deregulation. It was Abrams who sort of transformed the whole concept of an attorney general's office as an entity that can stand in for the federal government to protect consumers against financial abuse, to protect them against environmental abuse, and and on and on.
0: And I believe state attorney generals also have a power uh, over uh, voting in their states and in particular Democratic Uh, attorney generals would be able to uh, fight uh, Republican vote suppression efforts. Is that right?
2: Uh, In some states, I mean, it varies from statute to statute. Uh, Obviously, secretaries of state have uh, a decent amount of jurisdiction there. But, uh, you know, any time the constitution of a state is being violated, uh, and in some cases, uh, with federal statutes, there are state authorities built in. You know, all of those things are available to uh, a state attorney general, and it's 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 incredibly important. You know, last year, uh, right here in California, Xavier Becerra blocked a merger between uh, Valero, which is a, a, a gas company, and two petroleum refineries in Northern California. I mean, you, you think about antitrust and anti-monopoly enforcement as being a province of the federal government. But here, right here in California, uh, the state attorney general actually pursued and won uh, an antitrust case. So you can see that really across the board, whether you're talking about voting rights, whether you're talking about uh, economic rights and economic justice, consumer rights, environmental rights, the state attorneys general ha- play a major role. And and when you look at it through those that lens, you can see why Keith Ellison might have wanted to, to go back to Minnesota and and be in the action rather than voting for things that President Trump's going to veto uh, while a member of the House of Representatives.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with David Dayan. We're talking about why Keith Ellison quit the House to run for state attorney general in Minnesota. We also need to talk about the charges against Keith Nelson that Republicans are relying on in an effort to defeat him in Minnesota. A former girlfriend has accused him of narcissist abuse. This was featured in a page one story in the New York Times. Uh, what is narcissist abuse?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, this, this this allegation occurred uh, a, a couple weeks after I actually wrote and published uh, this piece. So I I wasn't able to ask Ellison about this. Uh, I did speak to him, but it was before any of this came out. Uh, It involves a relationship, uh, a romantic relationship, that Ellison pursued with uh, an individual who then claimed that he was abusive, uh, both verbally and in one instance she said physically, uh, although she claimed that there was a videotape of this incident that uh, she has never produced. Uh, uh, Ellison denies all of these charges he said it was you know a relationship that uh, ran its course uh, but there was nothing abusive about it in any way Uh, it's it's really kind of a he said she said at this point but you're right to mention that Republicans are using this allegation uh, not only to go after Ellison in his he won his primary this came out right before the primary but He's running for uh, in the general election, but they're also using it to go after Democrats in Minnesota, particularly in the House of Representatives, uh, trying to, you know, make a a cleavage there uh, saying, why does such and such a person support Keith Ellison, who's been accused of of this uh, 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 domestic abuse and and, and misconduct? Uh, I think narcissistic abuse refers to uh, the, the, the way in which uh, this individual says that she was treated, that he was uh, uh, somehow uh, abusive by, uh, I don't know, ignoring her or uh, being uh, more concerned with his own reputation than than with her well-being or what have you. I guess you'd have to ask her uh, for the full definition of that, but uh, that's, that's generally what the charges are.
0: So um... – Al Franken, Minnesota's former senator, had to resign after having been charged with several instances, mostly anonymously, of unwanted sexual touching. How come Keith Ellison is not resigning from his campaign for attorney general after being charged with narcissist abuse?
2: Well, uh, again, that's a better question for Ellison. Uh, The voters had this information. Uh, a few days before they went to the polls in the primary, and there was a primary, and there were other candidates who were running, and Ellison won resoundingly. So uh, he might feel that that he's gotten uh, a mandate from the voters, or at least the Democratic voters, uh, to move forward. Um, uh, again, it's it's sort of a he said she said situation. There is not any sort of corroborating information. On either end, uh, really, that can that can you know sort of once and for all confirm this. Uh, the Franken situation occurred, you know, there was a political context to it. It was happening right during the Alabama Senate race with Roy Moore, yeah. Uh, and Democrats wanted a sort of moral high road, yeah. to talk about that race uh, uh, and 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 not be distracted by you know uh, the response of what about Al Franken? So. Uh, that that was sort of the circumstances there, and we don't necessarily have that with respect to Ellison. So uh, he's he's moving forward, and uh, you know uh, I guess he'll be assessed uh, on that, and also what he would bring to the job of attorney general, which he's been pretty clear on.
0: The the um, Republican ad campaign that you referred to is being funded by Paul Ryan's Super PAC, and they're running TV ads against. Three or four of the key contested races for the House in Minnesota. and the ads start with this rhetorical question, uh, why is the why is the Democrat backing Ellison instead of believing his victim? The, this is pointed especially at Angie Craig, who's the Democrat challenging a horrible uh, Republican. Jason Lewis is a right wing talk show host who was elected two years ago. Uh, in what's regarded as a, a swing district just south of St. Paul, my uh, hometown. They're also running these ads against Dean Phillips, who's running in the west suburbs of Minneapolis. Dean Phillips is supposed to have a pretty good chance of winning. He happens to be the grandson of Dear Abbey. And the other one that we've been watching closely on this program is uh, northern Minnesota, the district around Duluth and then west of uh, Duluth into the what we call the Iron Range. Uh, the long-term Democrat incumbent resigned, uh, or is not running for re-election after Trump carried his district by something like 19 points. There's, so the, this is an open seat that the that Trump himself went to Duluth to campaign for the Republican. Um, Duluth is a Bernie country. The Iron Range is Trump country. They're hoping that that the tariffs will revive the iron mines up there. All of these places. <clears throat> Paul Ryan Super PAC is running uh, ads accusing the Democrat of backing Ellison instead of believing his victim. Uh, what is the, I mean, do you have any sense of how effective this kind of negative advertising can be and who, who, who it's aimed at and who it works on?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, presumably, if you're going to vote in November uh, in Minnesota – I'm not sure that the main thing uh, on your mind is whether or not the person you voted for uh, supported or, or was on a ticket with Keith Ellison. It, uh, I'm just not sure that that factors in rather heavily uh, when when you're thinking about uh, who should control the House of Representatives, what policies should be passed, and so on. Uh, so it really remains to be seen. these kind of guilt by association things, I mean, how many districts have we seen Republicans go to the well of running against Nancy Pelosi? Uh, no <laughs> yes. matter yes. what candidate is, uh, is in the race. And that doesn't always work out for them. So, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, obviously this is a little bit different because uh, there's a chance that they might, uh, these, these voters might actually know who Keith Ellison is. Sometimes Nancy Pelosi is put into these things. Yeah, you know the the thinking is who is that? Um, but at least he's running statewide on the ticket. Uh, but I, I suspect that these bank shot kind of uh, uh, renunciations uh, or denunciations don't don't actually work as well as uh, the ad makers think.
0: We only got about two minutes left here. I do also want to talk about what's going to happen to Keith Ellison's House seat in Minneapolis. This is a safe democratic district, and the primary was won by a remarkable person, Ilhan Omar, who will become the first Somali elected to the House, even though she's a newcomer to politics. Uh, this seems like it's going to be a great slap in the face uh, to Trump, one of one of many this year. Uh, what What is your sense of uh, the significance of Ilhan Omar, Somali Muslim woman, going to the House?
2: Yeah, Omar seems seems really great. As you know, Minnesota or Minneapolis has a very heavy concentration of Somali-Americans. And uh, so she'll be, I think, a a pretty good, pretty representative of the area. And uh, she seems like she's running on an excellent platform. She's one of the many so-called justice Democrats, uh, much like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib in Detroit, uh, who are really strongly progressive and reflect a, a new generation of leadership uh, that's more diverse and uh, more looks a little bit more like America. Uh, so um, um, ha- I was happy to see that Omar would be succeeding Keith Ellison. Those are certainly big shoes to fill from the perspective of, of being a strong progressive, but it does seem like Omar is, is someone who
0: can fill them. David Dayen, he wrote about what Keith Ellison is thinking for the New Republic. Thank you, David. All right. Thank you. I'm John Weiner, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, teachers and politics in Trump's America. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly. But first, unions are fighting for their lives in the upcoming midterm elections. For that, we turn to Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, with 1.7 million members and more than 3,000 local affiliates nationwide. Randy Weingarten, welcome to the program.
3: It is great to be with you. And, uh, you know, this is a season of renewal, but it's also the season this year of great resistance and great resilience.
0: Let's not start in Washington, D.C. I'd like to start in Oklahoma, not exactly a liberal bastion. Between 2008 and 2015, Oklahoma's Republicans slashed the state's per-student education spending by 24 percent, more than any other state in the country. What did that do to Oklahoma's public schools, and what did Oklahoma teachers do about it?
3: I want to put this in the context of Oklahoma, West Virginia, and Arizona, because what you have is those states and others which, after the Great Recession, right-wing, ideological Republican leadership made a decision that public education didn't really matter And they also made a decision that public services like crumbling bridges and other types of things also didn't matter. And over the course of the last 10 years from 08 to 18, they basically kept cutting schools even when the economy was coming back and opting instead for things like tax breaks for the oil and gas industry. Um, in Oklahoma in particular. And what what happened was you had four-day school weeks. You had a freeze of salary in Oklahoma for teachers. You had teachers that are basically on food stamps. You had kids who were using 50-year-old textbooks. And in West Virginia initially, then Oklahoma, then Arizona, other places, they finally said enough was enough. And I think there was a sense because of the activism that had happened in the women's march and in, in other places that they could rise up. And you had a human shield for students and for education and for the dignity of education workers like teachers and the public who supported it. And that's what happened in Oklahoma this year. And frankly... That wasn't the end of the story. The second act of that story just happened last week, which is in the Republican primary for state office. Twelve of the people who voted against a tax increase so that schools could be better funded, so that teachers didn't have a freeze of salary, twelve of the people who voted against that were defeated in a Republican primary. And in fact, of the 19 Republican legislators who disparaged teachers, who voted against it, who wanted the status quo, 15 of those 19 are not returning, are seeing hopefully a real transformation in the country about what's important to working folks, which is making sure that they have living wages, a pathway to the middle class having decent health care so that no one is one illness away from bankruptcy, having decent schools so that their kids have a a shot in life, and having a voice in our democracy as well as a voice at work. And that's what we're arguing for um, in this 2018 election season.
0: So at the same time that we see an escalating Republican war on public schools and on unions— especially through the courts attacking unions, the Gallup and Pew polls are showing the highest level of public support for unions in decades, around 62%, which is the highest, highest in 15 years. What do you make of that?
3: And, seven, and the PDK poll, you know, when people were asked, do you want to strengthen public schools or do you want to have alternatives? There you saw 78%, almost 80% supporting strengthening public schools and supporting school teachers even if they go on strike. Amazing. So you're seeing a resurgence. I, I think what's happening, John, is that it really is a witch side of on moment. And the right, they just think about how they're gonna crush others and how they're gonna crush the institutions for opportunity. And what they basically want is they want everybody to fend for themselves. So if you're a, you are a gazillionaire, you can fend for yourself. But if you're not, then you need to have public education. Then you need to have a healthcare system where healthcare is available so that you're not one preexisting condition away from bankruptcy. What you see in terms of the union numbers is millennials in particular, who when you look at their numbers, it's over 70, almost 80%, which say we need unions. They get that being united together in a fight that creates power to get something done. That when you don't have a silver spoon, when you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth, when you're not the 1% of this country, you need to work with others to make possible what is impossible working alone. That is what, that's the definition of collective bargaining.
0: Okay, now let's talk about the Supreme Court. The Janus decision is something we've talked about on this show a lot. Just to remind our listeners, in June the court ruled 5-4 to that government workers who choose not to join unions may not be required to help pay for collective bargaining. The New York Times reported that, quote, teachers' unions could lose up to a third of their members and their funding as a result of the Supreme Court decision. Our question for you is how, how is the AFT going to retain union members and get their free riders to want to pay dues?
3: As Justice Kagan, in her scathing dissent, said in Janice, at the end of the day, this was a political decision by five members of the court who hate unions. And what's happened is that people throughout the country are saying, we're sticking with the union. We want the representation of unions. We know that we are stronger with unions. And overwhelmingly, our members are sticking with the union. Now, we've prepared for this, meaning we've changed the way in which we address our issues. It's more important than ever that. Our members are engaged. And I think that one of the silver linings of the Janus case, again, I would not want this case ever, and I think it was wrongly decided, and if we had to do it over again, I would have hoped that it would have been decided differently. But the silver lining here is that locals throughout the country are going back to their roots and going back to talking to people. And what's happened as a result? is that people feel empowered, and they're not outsourcing their power to their leaders, and they're saying to their leaders, you do everything. What's happening is that member engagement is higher than it's ever been. In our union, we polled our members um, before the decision, and by a vote of 74% to 4%, I've never seen numbers like that, people had a favorable opinion of the AFT, and you're seeing that in the recommit numbers and you're seeing that in, in the people that are 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 basically saying, no, we're sticking with the union and we get value from it and we're not, we're not opting for the services without paying for
0: it. One last thing. Trump's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has proposed that states use federal funds to purchase guns for school. I wonder what you think about that.
3: It's insane. I mean, there's two things that are really terrible about her proposal. Separate and apart from what you think about her, and it just, it, it just seemed from the proposal that, the, that, that she was lobbying for the gun manufacturers or for the NRA, not for children. But separate from my personal belief about that, let's look at the merits of this proposal. She would take money that goes to kids who are disadvantaged, money that goes for guidance counselors, for nurses, for mental health services, something that regardless of where you are in the gun debate, you think that those things are pretty important for kids. She takes that pot of money and uses it for guns in schools. That is um, horrible in the first place. But secondly, why would you want to put more guns in schools? We know from the evidence that that, that if you have more guns in schools, you have a chance to have more terrible situations, accidental discharges of guns. The, the, the people who actually know what they're doing with guns, I do not. I have never used one. I hope I will never use one. But, but, but my friends, our advisors who are members, who are marksmen, who are members of the NRA, they'll tell you that, that, that it is insanity, to have someone who is not a trained professional having the use of a gun in the middle of these kind of emergencies. What are you going to do? You're gonna, the kids are running all over the place in, in trying to get out. You'd have a teacher with a gun trying to figure out who the shooter is against someone who has an assault weapon who can discharge 50 bullets a minute. So for all these reasons, it is a really insane idea. And what it would do is it would actually increase anxiety, make schools less safe. And that's why I, I couldn't imagine that there was anyone who was, who was suggesting this idea other than the gun manufacturer industry who wants to sell more guns.
0: We're sticking with the unions Randy Weingarten is president of the American Federation of Teachers, representing 1.7 million members. Thank you, Randy. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson had our update on hurricane politics today. We also spoke with David Dayan about Minnesota's Keith Ellison quitting the House to run for state attorney general. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry Quickly. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.